The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ah, yes, that moment you realise you're walking among giants. Enjoy the perks of a university ranked in the top 300 in the world. Study online, on campus, or both. Massey University. Success from a thousand little moments. To find out more, visit massey.ac.nz. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, haere mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. No mai, haere mai, and welcome back to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake. For the second episode of this third season, we're taking a dive into the big, wide world of cybersecurity. It's something that's been talked about as long as we've had email accounts, but in a world where we're pretty much permanently online, what does cybersecurity actually mean? How can we keep ourselves safe? And are the people in charge of our online infrastructure, businesses, service providers, governments, actually doing enough to protect us? I'm your host, Stacey Morrison, and today I'm joined by two highly credentialed and very knowledgeable guests. From Massey University, we have Associate Professor Julian Jiangjakar. Julian teaches computer science and information technology in Massey's School of Mathematical and Computational Sciences and has more than 15 years of IT industry experience. Her specialties include cybersecurity and private protection techniques for big data analytics. Joining Julian, we also have Laura Balmain, the founder and CEO of SafeStack Academy. Like Julian, she's got a wealth of experience in the space, more than 20 years, and through her work with SafeStack Academy is now focused on helping developers and organisations ensure that their security skills and practices are up to scratch. Tēnā kūrua, nau mai, whakapiri mai, thank you both for joining us. It's a big and complex topic, so Julian, can I please start from the top? When you, as a professional, talk about cybersecurity, what are you actually talking about? So cybersecurity can mean many different things. So I'm going to talk about cybersecurity, especially how it has changed the last Mm. 20, 25 years ago. One big change is in cybersecurity that we talk about, I think the perception of what needs to be protected has been changed quite a lot. So here... What we consider as a crown jewel that requires a protection has a dramatic change over the last 20, 25 years. So, for example, in 25 years ago, when people were talking about cybersecurity, it's about protecting something very tangible assets, something that you can see and touch. So it's mostly about protecting your assets, protecting your homes and your vehicles that you purchased, or your computers and network equipment that you purchased thousands of dollars last week. And those were the very important assets that people wanted to protect. And security protection mechanism was around that through how to protect the building, for example, right? But 25 years later today, when you're talking about cybersecurity, what we need to protect has changed. Mm. So instead of something Tangible, the cybersecurity has changed to protecting something intangible assets, like mostly around the data. So, for example, now these days people are more interested in when people are talking about cybersecurity, they they 
instantly imagine about protecting their uh, photos and videos in their smartphones and businesses. We're talk, thinking about uh, protecting their online businesses that keep up and running without any technical errors. Or some young people, when they're talking about cybersecurity, they want their favorite Uber is to be delivered without problems in a two o'clock in the Saturday morning after hard nights of parties. So those things have changed. Another interesting aspect of changes in cybersecurity is with the sheer number of digital devices that is connected mm. to the internet today. So this does not only include our traditional desktop computers or smartphones, but also a tremendous number of objects from baby monitor that now can recognize voices and images, or children's cuddly toys that can listen and respond to a child's inquiries, or to smart microwaves and refrigerators that are connected to Wi-Fi and can be controlled remotely. Data is produced by all these devices, and now data is become the target of the uh, cyber criminals. And actually, that's a good way to start speaking to Laura about this because your work with SafeStack is really based around organisational level security. Has that also changed in the 20 years you've worked in this area? Yeah, absolutely. If you kind of think about, you know, I think about my early jobs um, and I started work for, you know, uh, many, many years ago in taxation, which is about as glamorous as it comes. But you went to work in the morning at nine o'clock and you left the office at 5 p.m. and everything to do with work was left behind. Um, And you switched off. And in many ways, that was healthier, but I'm not here to debate that. Um, Now, You know, when we look at the way we run businesses, we have a concept in security called availability. The idea that a system should be available whenever it is needed to be by the people who need it. And our idea of availability has shifted. So for our organizations, we no longer need to just protect things inside a contained environment of our office. But also we've got this idea that anyone in the world, in some cases, should be able to access our data or our systems whenever they like. And so that's changed the scope of what we're doing. So for a business, instead of having this contained environment where you're like, well, yep, this is the thing I have to protect at this time of day, the scope of that is much, much wider now. So that's really hard, especially going on to Julian's point there, that it's it's ephemeral. You know, we're very bad as humans at protecting things that we can't tangibly interact with. Um, we don't even understand most of the time how much data everything we do generates. And so um, for businesses, that's a big shift because even just step one, understanding what you need to protect is very, very hard before you even become aware of the types of steps you need to do to protect it from those who would either do it harm or use it for their own benefit. So is there a vast difference between the risks for businesses and the risks for an individual? I think there is a difference, but I don't think the difference is vast, though we like to think of it as as that. I think the difference is scale. So as an individual, you know, I have my device, I have my family, we have all of the, the bits of data we have around the place. And the impact on us, if there was a problem with that data, if there was a compromise, a breach or an attack, would be very, very big and and problematic for us, but it would really only affect us. For an organisation, particularly one who's collecting a lot of information, if you imagine an online store, for example, where you're collecting transaction information and payment information, as well as the information about your staff and your team, if you're breached, it's not just you that's affected anymore. It's you and everyone you connect to. It's almost like... uh, as an ecosystem, that connection we have to all of these applications and to the data that's in them means that when one of us is harmed, many of us are harmed. 
And so that scale and that propagation of risk is one of the reasons that security is now so challenging. Mm. Actually, Julian, you wrote uh, about that for Spinoff and you said, each time our life is digitally anchored, an email's received, a car engine starts with a keyless remote sensor, a Bluetooth speaker is turned on, that creates another risk to be exploited. So we think and we talk a lot about the ways that these technologies add to our lives, but do you think that we are aware enough of that danger, you know, at an individual level? How can we reduce that level of risk with each of those digital anchors? I'm going to start with some good news. So (laughs) New Zealand uh, has about five years of history that operating this thing, this uh, service called THIRD. So THIRD stands for Computer Emergency Response Team. So many countries use a CERT as a part of the critical security service of the nation to understand the level of threats and the risk faced by the nation and its citizens. So CERT NJET collects things like the number of instances, the top instant categories, the total amount of financial loss, and vulnerability reporting. Based on the data collected in the CERT, so each nation runs a more targeted cybersecurity com- campaign to increase cybersecurity awareness to reduce the risk from the cyber threats. I would recommend as a good starting point to reduce individual risk, I would recommend the same kind of uh, personal security that promoted by the Cyber Smart Week, which ran last year by CERTNZ. So there are some very simple steps everyone can take to protect from cyber risk. So one step involves upsizing password, such as using longer and strong password, using uh, passphrases, string of string of four or more that is easier to remember but stronger than a random mix of letters, numbers, and symbols. Or well, another step involves upgrading to two-factor authentications. So using more than one way to authenticate yourself. So to not only use a password, but also add uh, additional uh, factors such as uh, thumbprint authentication in your smartphone. Or these days, another popular way is uh, putting to enter a validation code from an app each time your one of your devices are connected from new locations or from new devices. So security has this bad reputation. It's something that is inconvenient. It's an extra lay, extra effort that is required. But but of course, this little effort will take you a long way, mm-hmm. and then we highly recommend, even if it's a little bit of a cumbersome, that you still try a little bit more extra layer of protection. So let's talk about the people on the other side who are trying to scam and they're trying to hack. And they'll always take advantage of security lapses. These are all getting more sophisticated, Laura, these tactics. So do you think enough is being done to ensure that New Zealand's actually keeping pace with how those risks are changing? I think while the the risks are changing, they are becoming more sophisticated. There's also an element of these attacks that is universal, that has always stayed the same. And it's 
just it's about that human side of risk. You know, when you look at, for example, social engineering, which is a really fancy term we use for lying and cheating. So if I was to say, hey, Stacey, uh, I've got a package to be delivered to your house, but, uh, you know, we need your credit card number to make sure that it's fine. You know, the type of thing that we get by a text message scam. That type of scam has been around for as long as there's people. All we've done is change the technology that's involved. I think New Zealand has come a long way, like Julian said, with having a cert um, and measuring the impacts of security on companies and on individuals. That's really, really important. But what you can do is look at some of those behaviours that you described. So the scam's the same, but perhaps the angle is slightly different. Exactly. If you look at dating scams, for example, just um, this week in, in the on TV, I, I live with an 80-year-old. So, you know, we watch a lot of just normal everyday TV, not for tech audiences. And they're talking about dating scams. I'm having conversations with an 80-year-old about crypto-related dating scams. This is a brave new world to people like my mother-in-law. Um, but this is how they're adapting that Crypto and crypto technologies, NFTs, are very popular right now in mainstream media. Their uh, acceptance is getting wider into the population, but into areas of the population that don't have the technical skills to really understand what it is. They just see it as a new cool thing to do. And so you'll see the criminals adapt to that, much like a criminal knows that just before Christmas, you're going to have more packages and that's a great time to come and steal from the postal truck. Um, we just adapt to when things are available and what messages we can tag onto to increase the benefit of our crime, which sounds like I'm kind of purporting crime pays and you should do your research before you do it. But don't do crime. That's still illegal. Yes, very much so. And I like when the bank says things like, OK, here's what to look out for. We will never ask for your password. We will never ask for your credit card number. Those kind of things are helpful for lay people. So if we look at attacks, like you mentioned, Laura, um, some of them will go, OK, that's a hypothetical risk. Be on the uh, on the lookout for that. But with things like the WannaCry attack in 2017 or the attack on the Waikato DHB last year, what kind of real world impacts do those have and what other hackers actually trying to gain in that sort of scenario? The geographical location of New Zealand has contributed to our mentality that New Zealand is a secure and safe country therefore has made us complacent from global cybersecurities that know no physical boundaries. So unfortunately, this mentality has contributed to New Zealand. So there's a little bit of a scary factors. So New Zealand being recognized as one of the cyber five countries, there are nine times more vulnerable to cyber attacks than any other Asian economy. I'm going to give you another little bit of a scary uh, test. So according to the Cyber Risk Index published by one of the VPN companies, so New Zealand was referred to as the top 10 most vulnerable countries in the world at risk of cyber attacks. So it's not a hypothetical, the stats backing up, the cybersecurity is real. So what kind of impact the WannaCry, something like WannaCry or Waikato DHB attacks has impacted us? So when WannaCry hit many countries overseas, in fact, 150 countries in the world, so when it happened and when New Zealand had nearly escaped it, it was someone else's misfortune, many New Zealanders thought. 
And it was something, nothing to do with New Zealand. But five years later, little less than five years later, actually, after WannaCry, when Waikato THB was hit by the almost the same kind of a ransomware attack that hit WannaCry. And it almost also created very similar kind of a disastrous uh, consequences, such as forcing appointments and surgeries cancelled or postponed because the clinicians were unable to access some computer services, or cancer patients forced to travel to other centers to receive radiation therapy. So when New Zealanders watch TV about all this happening in our neighborhood, we finally realize, finally realize that cybersecurity are not hypothetical anymore, but it's happening. It's not only happening in other overseas countries with a lot more population or econo- uh, stronger economic, but it's, it's actually it made an impact for New Zealanders. Cyber attacks know no physical boundaries realize that the cyber attacks are a lot more real and closer than we originally thought. Right. So for big organizations, yeah, what are those hackers actually trying to gain and how do they do that? Um, so the, in terms of if we look at the, the Waikato breach in particular, um, that was a ransomware attack. The aim of ransomware is to solicit a ransom. It's to make money. And when we look at technology now, the technology in the ransomware space is advancing very quickly. You know, spinning up a ransomware attack is not months and months of effort. It's some well-placed scripts. It's some well-engineered software that they opportunistically attack any hosts that meet a certain fingerprint. So they will try and find companies around the world, no matter what they do, that use technologies that they know are vulnerable. So in some ways... Being vulnerable in this, it's not really about us being in New Zealand anymore. It's about that we are online with these vulnerable profiles. And the attacker doesn't care we're in New Zealand. They just care that they can get in, they can get their money, they can get out again. Like Julian said, yeah, this, we have no protection by being far away. No, and you have to just look at our, our ecology to say that, we, you know, this isn't just a new thing either. Yeah, you know, we literally have a frog that never turns into a tadpole because it's never had a predator and our birds climb trees. You know, it's ingrained into us that we are safe. Uh, other people, you know, if you look at what happens in the US, a lot of the cyber attacks we're seeing are about disruption and information warfare. So changing the public perception or rhetoric around an issue. Um, is that as noticeable to wide populations? No, but it's been happening for a very long time. The war in Ukraine is a great example of this, where the information being used on social media and available to communities is changing depending on the audience and who's putting that information out there. Also, I think, as I said earlier, so data has become a very, the source of making a big money. So a very similar instance happened in U.S. So one of the biggest uh, um, medical company with, uh, was attacked and uh, it lost about, I think, 800 million accounts of the, the patients. So there are the victims whose identity was stolen from that attacks. They get a bills for the medical care that they didn't actually receive. And also, there was some evidence of this, uh, uh, the attack cyber criminals using stolen identity to purchase drugs, on, uh, drugs in the dark web and res- resell them. And or just uh, simply sell them in a, in a dark web market 
just make a little menu as well. So it's multi-level. First of all, they ask for the ransom. Then they use someone's data, pretend to be them, and or send them a bill for something they never received. That's right. So the data becomes a very big source of income because there's so many different ways to be exploiting the data. And nothing can be done from the company's point of view once it's out there. They can't do anything in terms of protection law? No, once, once the data is out in the world, then we've got a bit of a problem. And, you know, if you look at that from the human side of things, when we're talking about data, we're not just talking about some files and PDFs that were, you know, created inside an organization. We're also talking about people's date of birth, their home address, their email address. Um, Some of those things are very, very difficult to change, if not impossible. And so, (laughs) you know, we've got this idea now where there's so much information about us that's out there because of the many, many, many breaches that have been going on over the years, that it takes actually a very big combination of data plus multiple security steps to protect us. I think, you know, in some ways, the way we do security now is kind of the tail end of what we're doing. There needs to be some changes with how we authenticate or how we identify human beings in the future so that these individual pieces of data stop being so important and so powerful. Is something like real me an answer or where does that sit? Oh, that's controversial. There's many people in the audience who have feelings and opinions about that. Um, I think I can't remember my password. Well, so you know. no, yeah, absolutely. There's challenges and there's challenges in any ID system. In all honesty, real me or some sense of, you know, national identifier has been posited a lot all around the world from China through India, through the US. And there are positives to it, you know, for example, inclusion in systems, but there's also massive negatives in terms of equality and diversity. So ensuring that all groups in your population have equal access to these technologies and these systems. Um, And also discrimination. Um, If you are part of a group that can be discriminated in some way by technology, these centralized identifiers can amplify that discrimination. So I think we've got a long way to go before something like RealMe would really be the the solution to these problems. But uh, there are a lot of smart people all around the world working on this right now. We just have to make sure that they've got the right uh, voices and opinions in there and scrutiny when it matters to make sure that there's no additional harm done when we protect people. So in terms of our individual actions, Julian, what would you say the most important fundamental safety factors for someone using the internet in 2022, whether you're logging into Facebook or you're setting up a crypto wallet or just using actually the Wi-Fi at a cafe? Well, um, I'm sure I think there are thousands of tips if you search on the internet, but I'm going to share about three three tips I normally share about the internet security that I normally share with my students in my cybersecurity courses. So uh, one tip would be limit the personal information that you share on social media. So oversharing too much information on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram could make it easier for cybercriminals to obtain sensitive private information that could allow them to steal your identity or uh, access your financial information. So one study conducted a few years ago that approximately about 54% of the respondents in the study actually share their personal, personally identifying information, such as what Laura mentioned, about your name, date, of a pla- date and place of a birth, address, phone number, name of the schools they went through, 
through the social media websites. The same study also uh, find, found that about 48% of respondents also shared information about their children, mm. while nearly about 33% people, they shared information about their locations. And I think 43% of uh, Respondents already said they also also share their travel plans uh, freely on the social media. So second tip would be browse in incognito or private mode. So if you don't want your computer to save your browsing history, temporary internet files, or cookies, do your surfing in a private mode. So most of the web browsers these days would, uh, uh, would support this kind of a protection. So when you search with this mode turned on, others won't be able to trace your browsing history or be able to easily steal your private information. Mm. The third tip is to use a virtual private network as much as possible. So using a VPN is especially important when you are on public Wi-Fi uh, at a library or a cafe or other public location. VPN sets up a private channel uh, over the internet that encrypts all your incoming and outgoing data to and from the internet. So thus making it more difficult for cyber criminals to breach your online security and access your private information. So you can find many VPN uh, solutions, but of course it will make a lot more sense if you use uh, trusted uh, providers, uh, if you want the maximum amount of uh, protection while using online, uh, connected to the internet. Nice. So not having your birthday on your fa- you know, public Facebook is, I mean, you're not going to get as many wishes, but mm-hmm. it means that they're not going to be able to use that information, right? Like you say, it can be an access key, can't it, Laura? Yeah, and I think, so this is where our traditional security advice starts becoming difficult as just regular humans, because we love to connect with each other. We want to share those moments. We want to send the picture of, hey, I'm at my nan's birthday in this place. Um, and all of it, every single thing we share, whether it's explicit or it was just in the photo you happen to share, tells a story. Um, I think what I'd remind people of is, you know, if I was to give a tip on top of those wonderful ones from Julian, is remember that you can always lie. That every time they give you a form online, there's nobody who's going to say, hey, Laura, that, that's not actually your date of birth. You know, naughty. That it doesn't matter. Um, our brains are very lazy. The easiest path, the least energy is where we tell the truth. So we will default. If somebody says, hey, Stacy, you know, what color are your eyes? Chances are you're going to just very instinctively answer truthfully. So taking that extra step and going, nah, I don't need to answer this truthfully. It doesn't matter. This isn't important information. Gives you that ability to just throw some junk in there. So don't always rely on an accurately filled in form unless you absolutely have to provide it that way. That's a really good point. So in, say, an online shopping situation, they just want to know you're over 18, so pick a number over 18. Yeah, okay, uh, and it, or, they're, or they're just trying to market to you, in which case it really doesn't matter either way because you're going to get junk mail one way or the other. I guess at the other end of the scale, though, we've talked about individuals, but what about the government and regulators? How can we ensure the entire landscape is at least getting safer? So for me, I think we go about security at the moment the wrong way. 
At the moment, we wait for large organizations to embrace security and security maturity. And then they take on these programs and there's regulations and guidelines, depending on what industry you're in. Um, and the hope is that if all these big players are nice and safe and secure, then it trickles down. But trickle down economics doesn't work in any scenario, let alone in security. We have hundreds of thousands of small organizations around the world each one of which is a supplier to other organizations. And as those organizations get bigger, they sell to bigger organizations. And it's this big supply chain, this big food chain, if you will, of connected organizations. We need to make sure that our larger organizations, whether it's our governments or our public organizations, are instead of saying, hey, small companies, you don't do security, I won't buy from you, that our big ones are actually providing ways for our smaller ones to be safe. So instead of relying on regulation where we say you will not do this because you don't do security, we should say, much like when you're getting on an airplane, we don't say to you, hey, have you brought your life vest with you? And have you prepared? Where's your incident response plan for a plane crashing? We sit you down and say, hey, I see you've come onto my aircraft. Here's your, your safety procedures. I'm going to make sure you're safe. And we should be doing it the same way. We should be pushing and giving security ability to those who are smaller with a view to the more of those we help, the more secure the entire ecosystem is. Because at the moment, it's not going that way. We're actually seeing the opposite happen where there's more fragmentation, more small businesses, especially in the times of COVID, where they're trying to survive and um, embrace new ways of selling. And every time we get another business online in that way, it's another risk. It's another household at risk. It's another set of customers at risk. So we've got to take a more community driven approach to it. I like your metaphor, especially because you're extending, you know, to the fact that we're acknowledging there is some risk in engaging in this activity. So, yeah, that's a good underlying thought. So just to ask you, Julian, is what do you want to see from the government and from regulators to help our cybersecurity? I think for a country like New Zealand, where there are no strong private sectors that can lead the cybersecurity efforts, I think the role of the governments and the regulators, I think it becomes even more important to create a safe and more effective cybersecurity ecosystems. So from the educator's point of view, I would like to see the government pushing to start teaching cybersecurity as early as possible so that we do not have to only rely on cybersecurity experts or another layer of cybersecurity defense system, as we know it's not, it can never be perfect. By starting cybersecurity curriculum early in our education system, everyone can become a soldier to a cybersecurity. So especially since the majority of cyber attacks explores very simple vulnerabilities that could have been prevented in the first place. So importance of early cybersecurity education is being recognized and implemented in many other countries. For example, last year, Australia proposed a primary school curriculum for kids to 5 to 16 years old. So as a first step, there was about 4 million government funding to start the cybersecurity education for year 7 to 12 uh, students. In U.S., the Department of Homeland Security offers free, full-year, kindy to year 12 STEM and cybersecurity courses available to whole school districts across the U.S. and teachers. In Israel, it is compulsory to teach high school students not only computer skills, but also how to mitigate different types of cyber attacks. Another 
the government supports, I want to see, is with the cybersecurity initiatives that build upon a partnership between government agencies, academia, and private sectors. For example, the U.S. and South Korea have such a three-way partnership where students are trained for cybersecurity at universities for specific needs for any private sector companies or governments. And when they graduate, they can apply full-time jobs the the way they trained for the government or uh, the private sectors. I think this is an excellent way to develop the next generation of cybersecurity talent pools for the nation's specific needs. Thank you both for some excellent ideas, both from an individual level. Uh, you've given us some reality checks, also some things to look out for, but also some pleas for more infrastructure uh, that will help. Any last points, Laura, from you on, on what we need to focus on in 2022, you know, knowing that we've had a lot of challenges recently? I, I think, you know, we, we're always looking for the big solution that's going to solve it all. But cybersecurity is an evolution of a historical human attribute. We are not nice people to each other when given the chance. And I think getting those basics in place and understand why the basics are hard. And when I say basics, I mean things like, you know, having good quality passwords and applying the updates on our technology as soon as we can, as soon as they're available. We've been talking about this for a very long time. Now, in any other situation where we see the same behavior occurring again and again and again, but no change, you start to question why that is. And I think the time has come rather than looking at new wave technologies to solve this problem, but it's to reevaluate why, with the knowledge we've had for a very long time, we're still in the same position. And I think until we really do that, um, it's we're going to see a repeat of mistakes of the past. Okay, that is actually a good place to leave it and to say, okay, work to be done. Kia kaha tonu tātou. Tēnā kōrua, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much, Stacey. You've been listening to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Massey University. It was hosted by Stacey Morrison. It was produced by T.I. Butler, with content management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. Special thanks to our partnerships editorial team of Matthew McCauley and Elisa Rivera. Study online, on campus or both with Massey University. To find out more, visit massey.ac.nz. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.